Welcome to Building Sustainably, The Road to Net Zero, a podcast by RPS. Achieving net zero requires a transformational shift in the way we plan, design, and build. But as the 2050 target edges closer, significant challenges lie ahead. In this podcast series, we aim to tackle the key issues head on. We'll explore real life case studies and provide actionable advice on how to define, design, and manage net zero projects and programs. In this series, we focus on decarbonization challenge facing owners and operators of large property estates, a challenge compounded by aging infrastructure, limited funding, and competing pressures. Here to make the complex easy, I'm your host, Chris Lavery. Have you ever wondered how to create a decarbonisation culture across your organisation? Or even what this actually means? What about how to approach a retrofit programme? How to know where to start? And how do you balance material sustainability concerns with resident or occupant satisfaction? These are just a few questions we're putting to John Daly, Asset Sustainability and Data Manager for Housing Association Magenta Living, and National Lead for the Housing Quality Network on Climate Change. With 12 years of sector experience ranging in both operational and strategic areas across housing management, supported living and asset management, John has a huge passion for the green agenda and measures decarbonisation in its entirety across a business. Retrofit, new developments, offices and operations and green space. As a previous support worker and housing officer, John prides himself on maintaining absolute resident focus, having lived in social housing himself, and then going on to study it at degree and master's level predominantly looking at long-term satisfaction. He works with local combined authorities, as well as academic partners to explore housing issues holistically, keeping the resident benefit front and center. Bringing together these skills, as well as a holistic view of the climate change debate, has resulted in Magenta Living becoming fast known for being a leader within sustainability with recent accolades, including obtaining Silver Shift accreditation and securing UK top 20 sustainable housing provider status both within the first year of strategy inception. We speak with John about his impressive career to date and why he's so passionate about making such a difference in his role at Magenta Living in regards to sustainability for residents. Welcome, John. Thank you for joining us on our series of podcasts relating to net zero carbon. We're really looking forward for you sharing your wealth of knowledge with us today. So if you don't mind, without any further ado, I'll jump into the first question. So John, for any listeners who aren't familiar, Could you expand on the Housing Quality Network, its purpose and role in the sector, as well as your involvement? Thanks for that question, Chris. Wealth of knowledge, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for that one. I know it's one of the things. So the Housing Quality Network, it is essentially, Chris, a best practice network and it provides high quality advice, like a bit of tailored support and of course as well around training. So we're trying to basically help the sector perform its best that it can do. It was established around 25 years ago by Alistair McIntosh and a couple of partners. He's like the old CNI. He's like really, really knowledgeable. And it's made up of about nine networks. So it, there's like a specialty within each part of, of the organization that focus on different housing issues. And the one that I'm established with is all around the Climate Hub. So it covers everything within climate change net zero. I became involved in this probably what about last year. It was used to work really. So I had a bit of a recommendation from another professional to say, oh, you know, would you uh, want to go and do a bit of work with them? And then got a little bit of an introduction. It was a bit nerve wracking because I knew Alistair quite well. I've watched a lot of his stuff before. I thought the organization was great because we got best practice from him in previous jobs. And then I was given a trial session. 
of around 20 delegates to talk all about how to strategy and wow that was nerve-wracking and that's coming <laughs> from like a competitive public speaker i was like oh my god like i'm on trial yeah but it was one of them things that i was dead passionate about and then like it's like the organization i go to to get best practice it was like they would give me the shots i was like oh my god so then i had one session so it was a few hours i had a really good interaction some really good stuff and i was offered like the lead responsibility but again that's for like the nation so that was like wow you know what i mean so we have them from everywhere we have people come from everywhere and for me personally i provide seminars on key topics throughout the year so I've done around like housing strategy in general, around net zero. I've done around retrofit, new developments. I've done a bit offices and operations. And my next one is in December coming up, which is about green space. So I'm doing around that one. I've done a few other things as well. So I spoke with Bayes around uh, the social housing decarbonisation fund and a few other things. And I also as well provide things like briefing papers, articles and updates on key areas. And then on my LinkedIn as well, I've done like a little video as well after uh, CIH in May, which was like nice to do. It was like, well, okay, there's like the face behind the voice. <laughs> so that was really nice. But yeah, I recommend anyone who's listening um, to get involved because they do some awesome, awesome stuff. They cover like every area you can think of in housing. And it's just great. It's full of people who just are passionate, who just want to see everyone do well. Um, especially, you know, housing associations, because again, it's all for the benefit of our residents and that's why we do it. So nice so far. That's great. Well, certainly the passion definitely comes through, John. I can uh, I assure you of that. So tell us a little bit more about Magenta Living. It sounds like you've been very busy. In the first year after setting the strategy, you achieved a silver shift accreditation and secured a top 20 position in the sustainable housing providers. So what is Magenta's vision and how are you prioritizing the steps to get there? Wow. I mean, this one keeps you up at night and obviously keep you at work in the day. And I don't mean that any negatively. Like, I'm super passionate about what we do. Magenta Living in itself, as you can tell by my accent, Chris, I am, you know, Merseyside. I'm a Scouser, so Liverpool, but we're based in the Whittle. We have 13,000 homes, 25,000 residents. And again, for us, really, it's all about sustainably vibrant homes, neighbourhoods and lives. I literally say that at every single opportunity. It's just, it's a reminder people why we do it. But again, as an organisation, 560 people, we all believe in that cause. So it's massive. In terms of uh, net zero and our prioritisation around this, we have a three-stage 30-year climate strategy. So that was written in about 2020. And that took us up to all the way towards 2050. Um, the first 10 years, the second 20, 10 years, and the third 10 years was based in like three different stages. First 10 years is all about achieving a fuel regulation goal, which was the 10-year goal for EPCC. So that's SAP 69. Try and get as many of our properties up to that standard. Second 10 years is all around zero carbon ready. So it's like mass insulation. But we're doing that as well in the first year, but it's majority in the second year. And then, then the, literally the last stage is all about renewables and mass renewables. So again, uh, there's massive around that. And that's across uh, 13,000 homes. On top of that as well, we're dead interested in not just our retrofit, but also our new developments. So there's a lot going on in there. We've got our officers in operation. So we're based at two different locations. So we've got Partnership Bill, which is our main office. We've also as well got our depot, which is St. Mary's Gate, which we're trying to make green. We're responsible as well for green space as well within all that too. And as well, um, we believe in doing it all together with a decarbonisation culture. So it's about not just saying, oh, it's like me doing everything. And we've got a very talented team, specifically within our departments, uh, asset strategy and sustainability. But again, it's the wider organisation and everyone within it, because if it wasn't for everyone believing that goal, 
we wouldn't be achieving the great things that we are. There's loads going on at the minute and priorities at the minute are all around our retrofit at the minute. So as I say, we're doing a lot on uh, social housing decarbonisation funds. So the Wave 1 project is that you like surely under the way. And we've also got Wave 2, we've just put a bid in for, which is really interesting. We're looking as well at sustainable education for residents as well, because about 20% of all energy use at the moment, especially with cost of living, is all down to resident behaviour. Building new homes as well, all around modern methods of construction and learning lessons to make them zero carbon ready but again the list is endless to be honest Chris and I'm just proud of everything that we've done and what we're doing and obviously all the people within it so loads going on <laughs> now you can see with so much going on you yeah. definitely need a team approach no doubt about it so if you think that was a big question I've got another big one for you now as well so oh, no. <laughs> can you expand on how you've approached your retrofit pilots with such large volumes of housing stock it can be hard to know where to start with our clients we typically follow a four-step approach starting with a gap analysis and establishing a carbon footprint before scoping a carbon reduction strategy and then identifying the optimum scenario. So how do you prioritize? Was it a case of cost effectiveness or did you have other drivers? Wow. It's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> no, I really appreciate it. It's some really, really interesting things. And the four steps you talk about are really, really interesting. I mean, the elements of a gap analysis. I mean, it's interesting when you speak around that is like, what is a gap analysis within retrofitting? And also, again, understanding, you know, there's a need for carbon footprint and a few things around carbon reduction. But I think for me, really, there's a few things that go into it more. Like we really, really believe in the impact on the residents. For us, say, it's not just about vibrant homes neighborhoods, it's about lives, it's about people within it. So again, we do look at the eligibility of homes. That's obviously, that that's the big thing. But then again, we talk a lot about resident impact and we look at, just not just from the data that we've got, but also as well from the input from teams as well as residents. So we take a very holistic approach. And I think there's a bias for me in here, Chris, because I mean, if you look at me LinkedIn, I used to be a housing officer and a support worker. So I'm very resident orientated. And when we're doing our scenarios, we really, really like make this the forefront. So for instance, for our, I'll give you an example for our social housing decarbonisation fund, wave one. I know, big title. Uh, we didn't just look at all that. We also as well looked at the areas that needed it the most in terms of resident impact data. So the government talk about fuel poverty being a big driver. And I absolutely agree with that. That's the reason I get out of bed every day because I don't want anyone choosing between heating and eating. But again, it's we looked at areas that were higher than national average in fuel poverty. So our main area that we were targeting was two and a half times higher than the normal national fuel poverty average. And also as well looking at income as well. So we were looking at the national median average, which a lot of like funding goes into, it's got about 30,000 a year. And some of these areas as low as like 17,000. So we've got to be thinking like who needs it the most. And again, how can we make that? impact onto residents' lives. This also as well look at some of the demographics in the area. You know, we're looking at areas that are receiving a lot more like level of national pension credits um, claims. So we want to make sure that the work that we're doing, it's not just about saying we're looking at carbon reduction because that's one thing we are, but we see it in hand in hand. The poorest performed properties tend to have the people who need it the most. And that's obviously why we do it. For me, it's all about making a difference. And as I say, it's usually hand in hand between the lowest performed properties and like obviously that the people who need it the most, but also on the back of that, in terms of residents impact, I'm also dead interested as well on looking at, will the property be sustainable in the future as well? So again, we look at it from a strategy perspective, is it strategically important in an area that we need to work in, which a lot of the time it is, but then also as well, we need to look at, will it also reach 2050 goals and modeling around that? So again, is it a long-term investment or can we help the residents in other ways? So there's loads going into it, but the big like be all ends all really is as much as I agree with the four stage approach you're talking about. For me, like I think the way the government's getting on now with new standards are passed 
past 20, 35, the residence is the most important thing. And if I had to give one piece of advice is put people at the forefront because every line of the spreadsheet that gives you the home, there's a person living behind it. And that's why we do it. Yeah, yeah, very, very true. And we'll talk about the residents a little bit more later on. Oh, good stuff. So just to broaden out, really, obviously cost is a huge concern, but organisational priorities, policy uncertainty, and the lack of capacity and capability in supply chains can all have an impact on the ability to implement the retrofit plans at scale and pace. What are the challenges that you've come across, the main ones? These questions are getting bigger and bigger, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I am... Oh. The, you mean some of the big things there you said the first thing was around cost just off the top of your head you know how much we need just to get to 2050 standard in the sector at the minute just does it give it a guess oh fire away i mean i look across all sectors it's enormous you know and i worry where we look at where we are at the moment where the money's going to come for all of this it's massive absolutely i absolutely agree with you. i think like the initial savile study that come out i think it was last year so that it was about 100 billion between now and 2050 and that's for 4.2 million homes but i think now the way markets are going it's going to increase more so it could even be up to double that i heard somebody else say that the other day at a conference it was like it's looking more like 200 billion but again that's not confirmed so it's massive and we've got to think really if you know how are we actually going to afford this it's a big thing and as well these offsetting funds like the social housing decarbonization fund green homes grants the HUD grant, the Home Upgrade grant, Eco, for, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm dead interested in, like, it's great saying that there's money out there available, big sums, 800 million for, for Wave 2 and SSDF, but what are the real world intervention rates of that? So, for instance, like at the moment, take um, Wave 1, sorry, Wave 2, it's £10,000 the property, again, given solid wall for an EPCD, but if something comes back and it's four times the price and it's supposed to be half and half, like 10 to 10,000, uh, sorry, uh, 10,000 funding to 10,000 uh, contribution and it comes back at 50,000, where's the rest of the money coming from? And that becomes a real big thing. So I'm dead interested around that. Another ones I'm thinking, skill shortages, it's absolutely massive at the minute. Past 2035, I spoke about before. So that is all around the new standard, the way government wants us to work. And it's all about the residents. It's having qualified people. So I'm going to quote a really you know, a wise guy, David Pierpoint from the Retrofit Academy. And he talks about, we need 200,000 people working in Retrofit by 2030. How much do you reckon? How many people do you reckon working it now? No idea. I mean, it's again, it's, it's got to be significant, hasn't it? So you're saying you need 200,000 at the moment. We're looking nearer towards 20,000 at the minute. So skill shortages are absolutely massive. And the government's are recognising this as well with um, it, uh, home decarbonisation skills funds, which is about £9 million worth of stuff. So it's like the understanding need to get people sorted. But because of that then, and these new standards, it's driving premiums on stuff because it's like being in a January sale. There's the last pair of pants in the January sale and everyone wants them. So they were 50 quid now, every, all of a sudden they're all 150 quid because 25 people want the same pair of pants. That kind of vibe at the minute. So again, it's getting skill shortages sorted, which I think is really, really interesting. But then I think you know, the other like kind of issues for me, I'd also do like the soft issues, if you get what I'm saying. So I think it's really about partnership working. So it's about like, you know, we're helping others be ready. So for instance, some of these funds, some people are like kind of hardened when they come into it because they've done some of these big things before. But there's a number of new organizations who will come into the fold and need that help. So it's like we're seeing, for instance, from wave one to wave two on this SHDF, it's like organizations, like I've never applied for this type of funding. So they're coming to more ready to more ready organizations for like assistance, which is great. But again, it's like them working together and how does that partnership work? And can we be open and honest about them discussions? And I think that's like a really good opportunity, but it's also a challenge. And then on top of that, then my last one is all around placemaking. So 
I think at the minute, because people are after like their own, like they're trying to help their own residents, which is absolutely right. Are we looking at it from like a geographical, like placemaking point of view? So can we like have like a point of, I call it homogeneity. So a point of like common point between us that we can say, okay, well, can we work on the same road? Can I do like the first eight and you can do the last eight in, of the, in a row of 16 rather than saying, I'll do the first eight, but I want to work over here. It's like, yeah, but you could finish the street if we work together. So it's about saying like, can we actually work together to like actually make the place better? rather than just saying can we make our stock better so it's like being a bit more holistic and thinking we can benefit as most amount of people within bigger geographies as much as we can no it's, that's incredible i mean the challenges you put there are, are immense aren't they just in terms of the sheer numbers that we're talking about yeah whether that's money people resources contractors the whole 10 yards so i want to come back you mentioned earlier on about the articles that you've written on various podcasts and you've talked previously about four key themes sustainability retrofits new developments offices and operations and green space carbon offsetting from both magenta living and a hqn perspective talk us through your approach and what you believe needs to be considered in all of those four areas yeah big question all of them so I think like before I go into each one of them, like quickly, just I think the one big thing that I'd say is like a be all end or like take away from the podcast is we've got to consider holistically everything together. One thing will affect another. So to give an example, if we look at EPCC and hit and retrofit, when that comes up towards 2050, we're also looking at offsetting with new developments or green space. We can't just like consider one or the other. So look at everything effectively. I'm not, I'll talk to each one individually, but it's one of them things that go throughout stage be very aware of. So retrofit, for instance, the big one obviously is SAP 69. We've got to hit EPCC, don't we? But also, as I say before, we've got to like look at long-term planning because whilst we might be investing in something now, will it hit the long-term plan of hitting net zero by 2050? Which, give a guess, if it's SAP points, Chris, do you reckon you know what 2050 standard is, just in terms of SAP points? I no idea. You fire away. <laughs> so it's a it's science-based target from the shift. It's SAP 86. So again, inclusive of a zero carbon heating source, now adequate carbon offset, but that's an average, right? So again, the more that you spend in retrofit or the more you spend in new developments, it becomes this thing where we can start offsetting the more that we do, do you know what I mean? And it's something that we do at Magenta Living. We look at obviously our neighborhood plans, everything's resident-centric, but also as well, when it comes to new developments, we've got to think of how we're going to do more because people just say, just build better, but then the cost becomes insane because you might go, I want everything, a SAP 100 amazing property but the cost to do that's like is it realistic no it's not so i mean you want to might do some via mmc which is a great opportunity but then the cost for that then likewise you might want to do something how does it hit 2050 but being cost effective or again how does that work into the resident then as well because a sap 86 home might be better than, or might be worse than a, a sap 94 home and then again also the retrofit you might have to do down the line so it's one of them things that it's all about resident centric and being like that and utilizing active asset management which is all about like understanding and the true performance of your stock and the true sustainability of it. And for me, that's something I advocate, not just in like Magenta Living, that's something what we all do, but I think that's what I do in the HQN as well, because I think it's real good best practice for the sector and the learning behind that's amazing. New developments I spoke about that quickly then, SAP 86, inclusive of a zero carbon heating source. Again, that's all again with a science-based target. But again, if we build higher, which is obviously a better, it's not just about saying is it more energy efficient and it's better in the fuel poverty perspective, but also as well as it helps to carbon offset some of the homes that might not get to 86 in strategically important areas. So for instance, if you only have properties that could only hit an 82 and you build a SAP 90, for instance, putting them two properties together, would create an 86 as you'd average it out to 86 but you can only do that as many properties as you build higher so this is where the cost bit comes in 
and it's dead interesting. Do you know what I mean? So again, how do you look at that new development approach? And again, that's something that I, Magenta will look at a range and doing it to make it cost effective, but also as well to make sure the resident experience is there because we're all about that. And again, it's something that I advocate at the, at the HQN. So it's all linked in there. Stop me from going too fast, by the way, because I could talk about this all day. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. I mean, it shows just how many different strands there are to each of these areas. As you say, each question itself is massive in terms of just the response. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? It's one of the things, like, I know obviously the podcast goes on for the same amount of time, but you can speak all day on this. And that's just two areas. So I just go through officers and operations, green space, like quickly. Uh, officers and operations at Magenta Living, really passionate about like the accreditations that we have. So we have ISO 14001. So again, that's an environmental standard, international standard. We've also got SHIFT, that's Sustainable Housing Index for tomorrow. And anyone listening, if you're uh, interested in that, please get in touch because it's a really, really good starting point if you've never done anything like this before. And the people who work behind it are like amazing. They will really help you out to understand where you can improve. And then also as well, ESG, so that's about environmental, social and governance. And then Magenta Living, we partner with the Good Economy on that. So again, we're one of the founding partners in like establishing a bit of a standard so around them three areas. And environmental is something you know I take lead on, and I think it's great what we do as an organisation to understand where we're at in terms of our officers and operations. And again, in terms of looking at that as a standard, it's something also as well we use with other institutions. So for instance, with the bank and a few others, like again, it's becoming an increasingly interesting tool to see how green we are. But also as well as looking at it from a HQM perspective, it's great to say that we've got standards. And again, there's a lot of talented people who work behind every one of them things within the organization but it's something that i advocate in the hqn as well because it's all about standards and showing measuring how well you can do these things and then lastly about green space that's a science-based target about 19 percent biomass in all other areas by 2043 according to shift there's a lot going on there i'll keep it short though uh, so there's charities and trust that can help with all of that but again it's all about encouraging biodiversity it's great saying we're doing things for the homes and we're doing things for the residents but we've got to make that environment better as well and again it's being an advocate of the environment not just in terms of like that biodiversity but also as well it's all the benefits that come with the carbon offsetting and it's not just about planting trees there's a lot more to it hqn is exactly the same it's all about like being collaborative in that approach there are organizations out there who can really help okay well, that's great well thanks for that john what i'd like to do is just take a slightly different tack now if we can sure. and it ties in with one of the other blogs that we did where we talked really more about the cultural side of things so decarbonization culture really interesting what's your view on it and how you create it so we're really really passionate about that as an organization it's something that i really love to champion but obviously people are interested in that and that's 560 people i can say i talk a bit a bit like a funnel approach if you get what i'm saying so for me it's about the having an internal team of passionate from the start our team were brought together to help around this to start but when we, when we brought the strategy out it was about saying how do we get this message out to get people behind it so again it's about being ambitious it's about being accountable and it's being adaptable and of course being passionate because ultimately we're only a, a small team in a team of 560 people so it's like a minority influence against the majority influence and how do you get that working so that's like starting very small and then working a little bit wider then onto climate champions so again we then had initial conversations and put a bit of a survey out towards the organization like who's interested in this kind of stuff because we didn't want to just like challenge like everyone go oh who wants to do it it was very much trying to see out there who'd already advocate that who already thinks like what we do so realised when we started doing that, there was a lot more people interested than what we thought. And we wanted to have a bit of a goal to say we want to have 
every team represented because we understand we're putting the message out there, but then we understand the challenges and getting the viewpoints around each other. So we looked at that and it was 25 people who come back to us around that. And we started looking at like the underrepresented teams and having at least one person from every team represented. So again, their perspective was crucial. And that also includes residents. So it's not just about saying, oh, it's like what we're doing for the organization where we know everything. It's about saying sometimes it's like the most important person who should be there, our residents to say who we influence. Around that, then it's trying to look at then the data and the strategy around that. So it's looking at about our KPIs and having measurement transparency. Really like big time there, but it's one of them things. <laughs> so all the information that we record around them four areas we spoke about before are viable and it's done to standard and it's all around the funnel. So about saying that not only we're recording this for what we actually want to look at, but it's based then in our, like obviously the, the climate, the strategy that we've got, but also as well the local authority strategy, the Liverpool City Region strategy, the government strategy around us and even up to like the UN sustainability goals. So we're very passionate about how we do it and letting anyone see that regardless because we believe as an organisation should be transparent. As standards as well, we also want to make sure that, again, people are trained to understand this kind of stuff. So we have carbon literacy within the organization, which is a dead interesting or a qualification to have. It's a day's worth of learning, but it doesn't just touch on the stuff that we do, but also touches on the science and also what our inputs go into the wider planet, basically. And that's really interesting. We start that with the board and the ELT, because again, we want to have that like that top-down approach and also we're training colleagues at the same time, which is the best thing ever, but it makes my job really hard because people are constantly grilling me about the green agenda, which is not a bad thing at all. But it's like, wow, the people are critical about this. I love that, you know what I mean? And then on the back of that then, it's about then building sufficient internal and external comms. So I write something called the Climate Chronicle every month, so people have an understanding about what's going on every single month and again we have external comms as well so we've got a few things that other people in the team are doing things like cost of living roadshows there's social media there's a lot of engagement within these again because we want to understand residents at the source but at the same time as well put out their message to be able to help residents what's going on at the minute so for me putting all them things together that's a decarbonization culture I think it's maybe not a bad thing being grilled, though, John. It shows that people are interested and they're passionate like yourself. Hello. So <laughs> just wonder if you could talk us through how you normalise the green agenda across an organisation. How do you do it? Government targets versus your own. Okay. So I think for me, I touched on it slightly in the last, the last answer, was around writing the targets in line with the wider targets. So I spoke about the funnel, and it's something that I'm dead passionate about, which is to say how... Our input hits the local authority input, which hits the local city reason input, governments, and then the UN agenda. So we're literally having that approach so we can understand that kind of golden thread, if you get what I'm saying. But again, it's got the rationale behind it. So why are we recording them things? And again, it's normalizing that so everyone can see it's being transparent. But one big thing that I think that the sector really needs to like look at is about making this easy and accessible. Because a lot of people think that climate is a lot of science, which it is. But I think for me, it's making it to the point where people can understand it. It's one thing about saying something, but it's about another thing being understood. And for me, I'm notorious for it in the sector, shall I say, is that I make everything simple to the point where everything's written in four areas. And again, I think it's been said a thousand times in different conferences, is a fact sheet everything. So everyone's a one pager. So it's like anyone regardless can understand that. And if I can sit there with them for 10 minutes with that one page, they'd understand everything that's going on. It's something that I really like doing. So because everyone's got like so much on the plates, they need to understand this in like the shortest possible time. It's making it really accessible. Another one then is relating it to others. 
via emotional intelligence. So again, it's not just about being persistent and saying like, this is really important because a lot of people at the moment are like, oh, how do we keep the green agenda alive and all this sort of stuff? It's about understanding all the team's challenges around this agenda and being very mindful of what they're saying. So to give you an example, it's, it's like if you look at the green agenda, it's different in assets to like housing management, to new developments. So it's like, how do you then speak three different languages? and then speak your own. And it's, for me, it's changing the concepts up slightly to try and make this understanding really accessible. I'm writing it in this, but again, it requires professionals to be mindful of others and not just think about their own agenda, which is not a bad thing, but it's a good thing as well. So at the end of every one page, I always say more considerations. And my goal is, it sounds a bit sad, this, it's like being on Dragon's Den. I don't want Peter Jones to ask me any questions at the end. <laughs> it's like saying that like okay at the end of it like all the answers should literally be in the considerations and if there's any curveballs that's fine but it's showing you that like if i'm presenting to you chris it's like i thought like chris lavery there and then he comes up with a few other things but then we can work through that together so it's being very aware of your challenges and trying to like make it relatable to you and the last and most important thing is you could probably tell the way i'm on this is being passionate. My absolute favorite wise man ever, believe it or not, is Jordan Belford, the Wolf of Wall Street. And he said, people buy people. And it's all about being passionate about what you're saying. People only remember 7% of what you'll ever say, but they'll always remember 100% of how you made them feel. And I said that there dramatically. So it's like, hopefully people will remember it, but it's very true. So it's like, if you come out and say like at a conference or in a meeting and discuss these things they're passionately, people remember how they felt about you saying that. Like, wow, we need to take action now. Rather than just going, oh, it's all these targets, it's really hard, isn't it? It's like, no, we've got to do something. Even if they don't know what to do, they're still very much like, wow, we need to do something at least. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And we said we'd come on to the residents and here we are. And you're very resident focused. You've said that's a big reason why you're working in social housing. So why do you believe so much that the resident has to be the service head? How long have we got, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, they are. And I say it all the time. Like people talk about asset management and go about the four walls, but I say every single time, the most important asset that we have in these organizations and in this sector is the residents. At the end of the day, if we went for them, we wouldn't have anyone to serve. We wouldn't have a job. But also as well, we're doing the right thing for the community. We need to be commercially minded. But again, we've got to be socially hearted. It's the right thing to do. We want to help, again, people within the industry, just people like me and you. So I'm absolutely interested around that. That's a personal like understanding about that. In terms of policies, we're starting to see this a lot more now. We're getting the rest of the white paper, as we know, the regulator and what's going on there. We're having area reviews, as we know. So Grenfell is obviously a big thing, as we know, but also as well, quite recently, a couple of days ago, around damp and mold. That's come out in the paper a lot recently about that poor, uh, poor child who uh, died from uh, damp and mold, according to the, uh, the coroner. But we have to be considerate of all these areas and everything we write has to have these resident considerations in mind. We just want to give them a safe, happy, warm, comfortable home because again, it's related to so many things. Do you know what I mean? If you look at it, for instance, as an example, cold homes on their own cost the NHS 1.6 billion pound a year. It's so important just to keep people warm. And that's just one element, never mind the health aspects that are associated with it. So it's absolutely paramount we think about residents. And in terms of the formal standards, we've seen this a lot more now. So I talked about past 2035 before, but that came from the Bonfield Review. Every home counts. We have to be considerate of all these things now formally for government financial support, because we said before, it's really difficult to look at the 100 billion downfall that we've got minimum and say we can afford it because we can't. 
there's got to be different ways of doing it. And the only way to access this, these funds is to be considerate of the residents. Everything requires that to be at the very forefront. And as I say before, every project that we do and every line on the spreadsheet has got a household behind it. And again, we've got to make sure that every consideration is taken for the residents. And again, it's a life behind it that we have to care for. Yeah, absolutely. So building on that, assets very much determined in terms of value or wealth accumulation rather than homes to be lived in. So how do you marry up the qualitative and quantitative approach and make more human decisions rather than financial ones? Yeah, <laughs> I think for me, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we have to consider that because at the end of the day, we've got to be a sustainable business. We've got to make sure we can do what we need to do. But we've got to look at data outside of the usual to understand true value. So we'll say before, like figures from the ONS around deprivation, you know what I mean? That's commonly cited. We've got to look at the value that it brings residents and people's livelihoods. But then what about the other aspects and the other indicators of sustainability? Do we look about income? Do we look about fuel poverty? Do we look about, according to our sector, the strategic importance of variance? We look at residents' impact, which is really important. And of course, as well, the holistic impact and insight that we get from teams as well. Because as much as like I kind of regret saying it, I don't really get to go out there and see a lot of this stuff anymore, which again, it's one thing that I do regret in this job. And I try to be out with his residents as much as we can, but there are people within our teams who get to see this on the forefront and it's understanding that resident impact from the front. And I think for me, looking at value, it's we can't just be looking at it from a financial perspective. We've got to do the right thing. We've got to take in considerations of all the qualitative approaches as well, as well as some of the metrics that may not have been considered outside of basically finance or say before around how residents live, feel poverty, strategic importance, income, you know, deprivation, how do we improve these? And then looking at that holistically within not just what we do, but how can we make effective partnerships to look at this for communities? So do we have local authorities? Do we look at other housing associations? Do we look at charities? Do we look at care associations? And we've got to look at it value-wise like that because we can do great things together. So building on that, how do you measure the value and how do you understand it? Okay, so in terms of our financial elements and a few other things, we have something called the APE model. So it's from Savills, and that is the asset performance evaluation tool, big term. But looks at the financials and the contexts. But also, again, we model this alongside a few other things. So we've just recently got IRT, so that's 3M, which is, again, it's an energy model and software, so we look at that. So again, that's all around, not just looking around just energy per se, EPCs, et cetera, but it also as well takes into account of these elements around ONS figures and deprivation and a few other things. I also as well speak with other parts of the organization and external organizations to understand them qualitative aspects. So that's inclusive things like your patch management, your area investments, your outlook, your business planning. And again, trying to look at like areas that need assistance the most, basically. So we're trying to be as like intelligent led on making decisions, but holistically making decisions. We can't just look at it and go, oh yeah, that area's got an MPV of X, not touching that, because they're probably the most in need. And then how does that marry up with other aspects? I talk about it a lot, but it's a big word called triangulation. It's trying to see the same viewpoint from different viewpoints, if you get what I'm saying. So it's one of them things. It's the more that we get this understanding, the more intelligent led we can make it. And the big thing is we can justify if we need to with the regulator, et cetera, that we've spent or we've invested in an A that needed it the most. But again, it's not always about cost efficiencies. It's also about sustainability across all them different facets across homes, across neighborhoods, and of course, the most important thing about residents' lives. So loads going on there. So, I mean, and rightly again, we come back to the resident, which is paramount. So how do you monitor your performance in terms of resident satisfaction against those more material concerns? 
So there's loads going on there. So, I mean, we use what I've spoken about before. So we'll be using things like IRT, 3M. We'll be using the, the modeling, et cetera. But also as well, we want to look at this with more understanding. So we look at further monitoring tools. We want to look at resident surveys. We want to do a lot more resident engagements. We're doing things at the minute with the cost of living roadshows. And I think like in the future, the more works that we do, I'd want to go back to the areas and have a look at what that score is. I know, want to know what both sides of the coin is. You might say from a data perspective, there's an increase in X, Y, and Z, and that's great. But then what does it say from a resident perspective? Can I triangulate that and say, well, it actually makes sense from what we've done on paper to what it's done in practice? I'll be doing this more so when we finish the social housing decarbonisation fund, where again, at the end of that, again, there'll be a lot of like evaluation around that. We want to understand residents' experiences around the delivery of that, but also as well as then the impact. I'm not going to do that as well not just via what residents say, but also around monitoring some of the elements. So we're looking at things like IoT devices and a few other things that we might want to have a look at the quantitative data behind it, which will also look at behavior and how as well can we target support further? Because again, we can do all the measures we can, but again, we want to also have the residents' welfare in general. We're also looking at this going forward as well on 2050 ready new builds. So like our MMC, so that's uh, modern methods of construction, as well as like homes that are ready for the future. So again, what lessons can we learn on these coming up that we can measure that, but also as well understand rest and satisfaction about that going forward. So we could kind of know what we're expecting going forward and how to improve that as we go along. So loads of stuff there about monitoring performance. Okay. And then that's what finally we've talked about a lot, but could you give a few examples about some of the lessons you've learned? This really is how long have we gone? <laughs> but I, I'll, I think of two particularly off the top of my head. One there is about 2050 homes that we've got. So um, on the metal construction. So they were built last year in um, SAT 94, inclusive of an SOC pump and solar PV. The billions homes, like the way they've been built. But again, this one, one area we're looking at, Windsor Close, it's got homes at the moment that are getting qualitative and qualitative understanding via bills and feedback from residents. So we're literally like visiting residents' homes, we're trying to understand how their living conditions are, we're trying to understand what the score is, and also as well working with a developer to understand the efficiency of the technology in there, but also as well the effect and the positive effect that we're, you know, we're seeing. So hopefully by like January, we'd have it, I think it's about 12 months worth of data, so we'll be able to start talking about them things, which is really good. And I say before on the social housing decarbonisation fund, so we've understood the prior and the model after effects. So we've said like, we should really see A to B and this is what it should look like. But again, looking forward, going forward on this in terms of real world setting, once we start doing this and we start looking at monitoring elements, again, we're going to start seeing that in the real world setting. Do we see the lessons learned of, we said it was going to increase by X amount of points. We're going to see X amount of savings. We're going to see an X amount increase in less than satisfaction and well-being. But is that going to be as what we said it was? So they're going to be in, as I said before, the areas that needed the most. So that's in normally around North End and Rock Ferry South. And we're really keen to be working with residents around that because, again, we want to improve their, um, their, their quality of life. But ultimately, as well, we want to understand how we can improve others. So there's two examples that we're going on. But again, in terms of the after effects and understanding that in terms of a full lessons learned, that's probably something you could probably come back to me in the new year. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, that was very, very comprehensive and really interesting discussion and very, very informative as well. So thank you very much for your time. I mean, it's incredible just to see how much is going on within Magenta just how busy you are. I don't know whether you get the time to do all that from, but definitely it's really been very insightful. So thank you very much for your time. And I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks to everyone for listening as well. Anyone wants to chat me on the Green Agenda, you know where I'm at. <laughs> Lovely. Great. Thanks again, John. Speak to you soon. Thanks again. Cheers, Chris.
Built Sustainably, the Road to Net Zero podcast is brought to you by RPS. To find out more about RPS and how we can help your organization achieve its net zero targets, visit rpsgroup.com. And then make sure to search for Building Sustainably, the Road to Net Zero in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at RPS, thanks for listening.